get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole. And on this episode, we have superstar producer, artist, entrepreneur, and overall legend, Mr. Swiss Beats. What's going on, King? I've been doing this podcast where I've taken classic interviews and telling the history of an artist or a pop culture figure. But I've mm. also focused on producers. So recently I've done uh, the legendary Kenny Gamble. Uh, I've done Jermaine Dupri. And now Great. Uh, you get a chance to be on the Backstory Podcast. I talk to a lot of young people hmm. inside and outside of the entertainment business, and they know the names, but they don't necessarily know the history behind the names, the stories behind some mm. of the history people like you have created. So I felt it was important to lay down these legacies for current and future generations to hear. So part of what we do on the Backstory Podcast is talk about what you're doing now, but also what got you to this point. It's no secret. You know that I have always been a big fan of yours. I mean, back in the day, we spent a lot of time doing some legendary interviews. And a lot of folks just don't know the Swiss Beats that has had a tremendous impact, not just in hip hop, but in music and arts and culture. And as I was doing my research for this podcast, I swore I knew you, but I learned a lot as well. So this is going to be educational for everybody. And there are a lot of interesting things that you've been working on. So the people need to know about it. Definitely. So anyway, Swiss, let's get right into this backstory podcast. You're from the BX, born and raised in the Bronx. You grew up in the birthplace of hip hop. So you had a direct connection to the music from its start. You felt all the energy of the culture in its early stage. What was that like growing up in the mecca of a culture that really changed your life? Um, It was just it was like breathing, you know, growing up in the Bronx, like, it was art around us all day. It was music around us all day. I mean, you could literally go in the back pocket to see everything that created where we at today. Yeah. And um, I just feel like that was a blessing to be immersed in so much creativity from birth. And then actually being able to translate that into a career and, 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 and as an influence, you know, to the, to the current generation and the generations before so as you were coming up you were a dj mm-hmm. but also during this time you got into a lot of trouble and your family sent you to atlanta yeah so what was that like being a kid from the bronx going to atlanta what was this like the early 90s it was like um it was i didn't it was a hard transition for me because i never been to atlanta at that particular point and i just thought it was like farms and stuff right so i'm like damn i'm moving out the hood right which I had all my friends, and, and I already was comfortable there. Um, but my family, wanted, my mom and my step-pops wanted me to have a better chance at life, and then, so they moved to Atlanta. Um, ended up being hood as well. It was a different but, um, kind of hood. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was definitely. It was more gang lifestyle there. It wasn't right. really gangs in New York. It was right. gangs in Atlanta. Right. Um, but then it all eventually turned into the music, you know, so... So what was happening musically in Atlanta while you were living there? And how did you connect with that vibe? Because, you know, being from the East Coast and the Bronx where hip hop kind of got started at that time, we laughed at hip hop music from other places like Atlanta, Miami and the West Coast. We didn't really take it that seriously. Yeah. I mean, when I went there and heard the 69 boys and all this stuff, here, I didn't know what was going on. But then um, what made me have a 
transitional moment there was I was DJing and then um, the main DJ for the prom couldn't make it. Right. And so the principal of the school knew I was a DJ and offered me the job. And then when I, when I, when I DJed, I played music from everywhere. And that kind of changed the landscape of parties in the A back at that time. Played reggae music, West Coast music, East Coast music, and South music. And it just people never really, um, um, people never really experienced that. When you go to a party in Atlanta, all you heard was Atlanta music. You know what I'm saying? So it kind of made my parties unique to the point where I started DJing in clubs really quick. And um, it started to become fun. So you end up coming back to New York from Atlanta and your family members, Wad, Dean, and Siobhan, started an entertainment company called Rough Riders. When did you start getting interested in producing and the process of the production of songs? I've been into producing before I knew I was producing. I was working on, I was producing when I was making intros for my mixtapes. Um, so like, your intro had to be amazing for your right. mixtape. So you always had to have like a, an MC opening up your mixtape. If you're trying to be like Ron G or Duop, which I was trying to be like right. a Kid Capri or one of them. And so I was doing these intros, and then um, my uncle was like, yo, take take the vocal out. Like, that's like producing. You should produce. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, right. There wasn't no producer to look up to at that time. It was just all DJs and rappers. Right, right. The producers haven't made the forefront at that time, and that's why like, when I came out as a producer, it was important for me to make it cool to be a producer. But you were also 16 when you sold your first beat, which was unheard of at that time. It's kind of funny now because it's commonplace for a kid to make a beat, put it on the Internet and have success. But at that time, no, we're talking about selling millions of records, too. Yeah, you sold a lot of records and we're going to get to that in a few. So at 16, you create the Rough Riders anthem track for DMX and you sell that. What was that like for you to make a beat, see it take off on the radio and all over the place and become an anthem? I mean, it felt great. I mean, it wasn't my first beat sold. Um, what people don't understand is I had to earn my stripes outside my family. <clears throat> before they accepted me in-house as a certified producer, you know, so I had banned from TV before that. Oh, that was before. That was a monster beat, too. Yeah, yeah. And then I had Flip Mode Squad, um, Run For Cover, and I had Cam's album that I did. Um, and I had a couple other songs, too, that was leading up to But when Stop Drop came out, it just changed the whole landscape. Yeah. So then you become the new hot producer. Your name was perfect, and you were one of the first to incorporate your name into your beats. Again, this is commonplace for producers now. And you now become this well-known person, and I'm sure you started to see money. What was that like? What did you do with your first big check? Um, You know, I never really did it for money. You know, I was doing it to have fun. So when my first checks came, I didn't, re- I didn't think they was real checks. Really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I never seen no type of money like that before. And so um, I went to ASCAP one day to, um, they had like an insurance card they was trying to introduce to all the writers and producers and stuff. And um, I went in there to get it, and they was just like super excited to see me. It was like, oh my God, like, I'm like, damn, I just, why everybody's so excited like that? It's like, oh, how does it feel? I'm like, how does it feel what? I'm like, how does it feel to be rich? I'm like, I'm not rich. I took like four buses, two trains to get here. I'm not rich. And he's like, and, and she was like, um, no, I send you your checks. And I'm like, what you mean? She was like, no, I, I, like, you have a lot of money. I send you your checks. Right. 
And I was like, then it hit me. I was like, those are real checks? And she was like, yeah, because you know the hood. Like, we got publishers, Clarence House, right, and right, right, right. they're always oh, sending some was- fake checks to the house. So I didn't know that. So you didn't rip them up, though, right? Nah, because my grandmother always told me just whatever checks come, just whether they, you know, just keep them in the box and she'll sort them out. So I always right. just kept checks in the box. And but I kind of found out I had like 750000 just sitting on my dresser for months. <laughs> so then you must have clearly rushed to deposit them right away. It, look, man, like after that check, I didn't need anything from anyone else still to this day. And how old were you at that time? I was like 17. 17? 17 going into 18. Cause I got my crib at 18 going into 19. Wow. Um, my first house. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Swiss Beats gets to produce with the biggest rapper in the game. On his third album, he delivers several gems for Jay-Z. Um, I mean, working with Jay was, it just was unique. You know, it was just on site. You know, I came into his life at a point where he might have needed direction, like, sonically. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Kolb, and this is the story of legendary producer and artist Swiss Beats. So it's 1998. Jay-Z comes along in your life. He was already a hip-hop star, had two albums under his belt. Reasonable Doubt was the classic that kind of put him on a map. His second album, Volume 1, at the time was considered a letdown because he took a lot of chances. So there was a lot riding on the third album, which was really his breakthrough album. It went six times platinum, and you had a few tracks on this album, like Money Cash Holes. If I Should Die, I mean, it's just Coming to Age too. Yeah, so you had all that early success with DMX, but now you're working with the biggest artist in the game. What was that like? I mean, you clearly had a creative connection with him, which became a lifelong creative partnership. You ended up working with his wife, which we're going to get to down the line here. But he also worked with your wife. Um, I mean, working with Jay was, it just was unique. You know, it was just on site. You know, I came into his life at a point where he might have needed direction, like, sonically. Right. You know, because he had came off the Black Street record. And, you know, I think the vibe was real crossover at that time. And then he had my sound with Jigga and all these different money cash holes and all these different sonics that, you know, that I felt that he understood that that was a, that was going to take music to another vibe, which it did. And that album was such a huge success and an important watermark for hip hop. Yeah. But 45 King killed that hard knock life. I couldn't, I couldn't compete with that. Yeah. But you still gave him just as an important of a sound. And Mark, the 45 King was already a hip hop legend. So you got a chance to be on a project with him but nobody saw six million coming on that big of a stage. Then 1999 was a really good year for you. It comes along, and this is when I started to really get to know you because you were working with Eve, who was from Philly, so you were spending a lot of time producing her album, which you did most of it, and you give her cuts like Love is Blind, Got a Man, etc. And you introduced the world to the pit bull in a skirt, a.k.a. Eve, who burst on the scene in 1999, similar to what Cardi B did last year. Eve had instant impact. Facts. Talk to us about the creative process, especially with a new artist, because with Eve, you both had a vibe. The chemistry between you showed in this debut album. Um, It was pretty cool working with Eve because she was like the first female rapper that I really, you know, developed, helped develop. And it was just ill because she would just come in with a different energy. You know, I, I know what songs to do. if She's like fighting with her boyfriend. Right. Or if she's like in a good mood, you know, you got to take, 
Like with women, you gotta check the temperature. You know what I'm saying? You can't you can't talk crazy to a female in the studio. Like like how I could talk crazy to like one of the fellas. Like yo man, we get in the booth and drill. What are we doing? Like he was like yo, you okay? You straight? Yeah, it's more like you know like a smoother vibe. Even though she's a pit bull in the skirt, you know it was still based off of energy. Did you have a feeling she was going to be such a tremendous success while working on her debut album? I knew she was a star. Like when she came in the room and battled everybody, I was like, oh, she's out of here. You know, then she had to look as well. So then, in the summer of 1999, you dropped this gem for Hove, Jigga My Nigga. I mean, it was such a big record. I remember the first time I heard it, it was an automatic anthem. That dun, 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 dun. Where, where did this track come from? I was just feeling some type of way that day. And I expressed it through the music. Like, I feel that same type of way today. You know, now that you say that, I definitely feel the emotion of that song. There was clearly something special about that track. Facts. Because it captivated people. Just the intro itself was like a movie. You know, one thing I wanted to tell you about, your intros were always mesmerizing. And I I just had this conversation with legendary um, producer Kenny Gamble from Gamble & Huff about the classic stuff that they did. And if you ever go back and listen to those songs, the first 30 seconds were cinematic. They would reel you in. And on the hip-hop side, you have that magic, too. Another gem you give Hove is Girl's Best Friend. That was a song off of a soundtrack. Then let's get to 2000, and you deliver one of the biggest records in DMX's career. It was a pop smash, still an anthem today. Party up. Y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in here. Up in here. <laughs> still is. It's crazy. Yep. Timeless. You then start working with the locks who had left Bad Boy. They really weren't a great fit for Puff and what he was doing at Bad Boy. These guys were hardcore, and you coming together with them, you kind of took them to their rightful place in hip-hop with a song called Wild Out. It was a classic East Coast beat. I used to joke about this track. If you hear this song while walking down the street, you're about to get robbed. (laughs) Man, that was a classic beat, Swiss. So I have two all-time favorite Swiss beats. My first is this sample you took from Free to Pain, it's a record called I Get High. And the way you flip that for Styles P from the locks on the solo project and me being from the East Coast and a first generation hip hop head, I'll never forget the emotional connection I had to that track. Talk to us about the Good Times song. Um, but the Good Times record, I was in Atlanta and then um, it was just, I just was in a, in a different space. And I'm um, actually um, a producer named Saint had the sample and I just was feeling like, yo, I want to I want to vibe with this and give it to Styles because I just want him. To, I just want, I just Styles like smoking. You know what I'm saying? Right. It was just like the perfect song for him. Right, right. And um, who don't like weed songs? Oh my God. But the beat was just yeah. And the, and the soulful vibe of the drums and the sample, it just was something that wasn't predictable. Did you have a feeling about that track for Good Times when you put it out? I mean. Did you have a feeling it was going to mesmerize people? I knew it was going to mesmerize people because it was on my album and then um, Interscope and everybody, you know, fought for the rights for it to be on, on their side. I gave them the rights to it. It was on my album, but I gave it the rights because I don't really trip on shit like that. Right, right. Yeah. So let's fast forward. You get your own label deal through um, Clive Davis. You get a situation with his company. And your first artist is Cassidy. He was a Philly kid. I remember him on the come up and you introduced him to the world with some huge songs. How did that connection come about? Well, he was, a, he was in a group that we had called Larceny. 
And my dad used to manage that group. And then, um, you know, he just was one of those guys that just stuck out. And so when I knew he was doing his solo thing, I was like, you know what? I, I had my label, you know, with Clive Davis at the time. And, you know, he was just the perfect person to, like, mold into something that, 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 that I thought hip-hop needed at that time. So you drop Hotel with R. Kelly on the hook for Cassidy. You deliver a great debut album for him. And then he goes through several life-altering personal issues. Yeah. But you stick with him. Facts. And we'll get to that next project in a minute. But then you connect with T.I. and give him his first mega song, Bring Him Out. I think this was one of the first times you worked with a Southern artist. Maybe you had a couple, but this was the first time I, I paid attention. Yeah, I did a couple. I did uh, A-Ball, MGK. I did... Dude, I was working with a lot of Southern artists, and I had a Southern artist myself named Young One at the time. Um, but um, Bring Him Out was uh, was T.I.'s like breakthrough record that yeah. got him out the South. You gave T.I. that East Coast swag with a great sample of Hove, another timeless record. Facts. If you're any kind of hip-hop purist, you can't go wrong with Bring Him Out. That's a classic. Then you drop I'm a Hustler from Cassidy, which took off like a rocket. And, and that was another song with a Hove line in the hook. What was that all about, sampling Hove like that? I just was having fun with it. I was just being I was just being obnoxious. Then you drop Buster Rhymes Touch It. Again, a memorable beat. This track was crazy. And tear the roof off before, way before it touch it. So your career is going along fine. You're the hip hop king. Any beat that you drop in hip hop, people are reacting. Then you get a chance to work with one of the biggest artists in the game, not just hip hop R and B, but just in the game, Beyonce on her B Day album where you deliver a slew of great tracks. I always say this about Beyonce's career. You really were responsible for shifting her to the harder vibe. And, and we first heard it on B-Day. For instance, the song Ring the Alarm. I recall the first time hearing that and the reaction. It was angry. The emotion of that track caught people off guard. I remember we were having debates because Beyonce's f true fans couldn't understand it. And in the words of Kevin Hart, they wasn't ready. Yeah. But then you give her upgrades you and get me bodied. This was a very high watermark for you. I'm sure it opened up doors for you because you weren't really doing a lot of R&B at that time. What was that moment for you um, after B-Day comes out? Um, it was cool. I mean, you know, it was almost I did those beats like that because it was almost like a competition with me and Rodney Jerkins at the time. Mm -hmm. She had Rodney Jerkins upstairs. I was downstairs in the E-Room. <clears throat> and then um, she was like, Yo, whoever, you know, it was almost like the last one going to survive. Right. And I just was like, I, I'm, I'm very competitive. Did she come to you? Did she connect? She, yeah. And let's not undervalue Check On It. That was a number one pop smash. That's a hell of a check there. We got a couple of vibes. Yeah. You know, one thing a lot of people don't know about you is that you did Whitney Houston's last single. It was called Million Dollar Bill. I remember seeing you at the BET Awards right after you did that song. Never in a million years that I think you did that song. I loved it when I first heard it, and then when I checked and saw that you did it, I mean, it had that New York club vibe. It's almost like a house record. And you and your wife, Alicia Keys, did this record together and gave Whitney a different vibe for her career at that time. What, what was it like working with Whitney? It was cool. I mean, you know, we helped to um, actually with the entire project, um, even though, you know, that was the single and the song we physically worked on. Um, her and my wife was super cool. And then they would, you know, Whitney would fly out to just chill. Right. You'd be like, yo, where you at? And like fly out and come chill. Really a family member, um, you know. But it was just like some something was like 
we need to work with her on this record. You know, Clive called us, and then we just took it like way further, and and um, happy we did that. You yeah. know, happy we did that. But that Whitney vibe is like the same vibe that I gave Angie Stone with um, "Missing You." Mm-hmm. You know, like that, doom, doom, doom. Yeah. like just those, that up tempo, and, and I seen Whitney in that same space. You know, almost like the disco feel, but still sexy. Well, what it taught me about Swiss beats was that you didn't have one identifiable sound. You could do all kind of stuff. Again, when I saw the credits and saw that you did this song, I was like, wow, what a different vibe for you. And it was clean and smooth. Yeah, we could do that. Coming up on the Backstory Podcast, Swiss Beats goes back to school. Not just any school, Harvard. I didn't really particularly want to go to Harvard. I just, Harvard was something I just wanted to challenge myself with once it was an option. You're listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and this is the story of Swiss Beats. My second favorite track that you produced was On to the Next One from Jay-Z. I could not, for the life of me, find a sample for that song. It's almost like a hidden sample, because I really wanted to know what that was. (laughs) It was like a French pop record or something where you found a little part of the song. Three seconds. Wow. Three seconds to find the most awesome hook. How did you find that? Man, I mean, I'm a fan of all genres of music, so I listen to everything. And, you know, just to vibe with, you know, that that record was my um, record first, and that was like my exit to the industry. I'm I'm going on to the next one and Mm -hmm. get into art and fashion. Everything that I've done, that that song was the peace out. Right. Right. And then um, Jay hit me. And he was like, yo, I need one of them joints. I'm closing out the album. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to send you one song. And that's it. And it was on to the next one. And, you know, and we got the Grammy off of that. And that was like pretty dope. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So now we seg to the late 2000s. And Drake is the biggest artist in the game. And you deliver for him a track called Fancy, which is actually one of my all-time favorite Drake records. The track you sampled is an Ace Spectrum record that you actually sped up, plus you put T.I. on the track. It was dope how you did that. Um, Once again, Fancy was for my album, and I remember speaking to Drake like four in the morning, and I was he was like, tell me what he wanted to work on. I was like, oh, I got something on my album that sound like what you're asking me to work on. I'll let you hear for a reference. And I sent it to him, and he was just like, nah, that's the song, I need that one. And I was like, nigga, that's, that's my single. Right, 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 right. And he was like, nah, I need that one. And then um, I decided to give it to him because I'm a producer first. And then, um, and then it just took off. You know, it just went crazy. Not a lot of producers who aspire to be artists would have done that. And you've mentioned this several times that you gave up tracks you made for yourself in order for someone else to do them because they liked them. And then they had tremendous success with those tracks. Because yeah, I'm still on the songs, right? Like I'm still on the chorus of On to the Next One, still a part of Fancy. You know, we still get to have the vibe, and um, I don't have a problem with sharing. You know what I'm saying? So let's get to right now. You're on Lil Wayne's new album where you flip the special delivery beat from G-Dep for his track, Up War. But you also have a gem on your new album, Poison, with Lil Wayne that's all over the streets right now. Pistol on the side, P.O.S. It's because of that song, P.O.S., Pistol on My Side, that we are actually here right now. The day you dropped it, I tweeted at you that I was happy to hear new music from you. And then when I pulled up the song, I was blown away. 
I hadn't heard of Swiss beats like this in a while. And I had to get you on the podcast. That POS beat is everything. The energy of the song is called a dance craze online, especially in the New York City area. If you um, search on social media, you'll see a whole bunch of kids that are dancing to this song. Tell me a little bit about this new project, Poison. You know, the name of the album is called Poison because in life, we got to handle We got to deal with our poisons in order to poison on. Right. So, you know, I just wanted to um, come back after, you know, I didn't put an album out in 11 years. And so I wanted to come back, but I wanted to start on the ground floor. I didn't want to use my penthouse key. Right. So I don't have like no big crossover records on my album, although one might pull something and it just happened. If it, if it does, it does. But that's not what I was aiming for. I was aiming for um, something that was authentic. I wanted to have all of the features on the album performing, you know, the best that you've heard them or better. Like that was the criteria of making the record. So when you listen to everybody that's on the album, you're gonna say like, "Damn, like that's Wayne. Wayne sound like this, and this one sound like that." Well, who else is on this album? Um, we got Wayne on the album. Um, we got Pusha on the album. Um, Young Thug on the album. Nas on the album. Um, a bunch of motherfuckers on the album, but but it's not like a compilation, right? It's it's, it's really an album, and it's a body of work. And um, it's curated as art, and um, I think people will enjoy it. I'm glad you brought that up, um, art. You have a passion project for creatives. You talk about being an artist yourself, and when you make music, you get royalties off of that music for the rest of your life. Whereas an artist, like who does a paint or picture, or you know molds clay, or does any type of artistic, sells it. And then they may not make a lot of money off it when they first sell it, but then years later it can sell for millions of dollars, and they don't see any royalty. I see you paying. I see you paying attention, huh? Talk to us about this initiative. That's just it's not it's it's not even a project. It's more of it's more of a lifestyle, right? It should be a lifestyle to do the right thing for the creatives. And once I seen that um, artists weren't weren't getting royalties, like how we get royalties as as musicians, I, I just thought it was crazy because. Art and music, brothers and sisters, right? What's the difference between me and Kehinde Wiley, right? right? It's like, like how? Like I don't understand it. And so, um, I just wanted to come up with a couple of ways to challenge that, you know. And then also, um, I give back no commissions, which is our art fair that gives let the artists keep a hundred percent of their sales, let the people in free, you know, just creating the entry point for the culture to really experience something amazing, and so on. It's fun, you know. We we we, we see the thing is like um, in order to make it work, it can't it, it can't be like something that's forced on you, right? So hence uh, what we just did at Sotheby's, uh, the owner of the Kerry James Marshall agreed to um, give Kerry James Marshall a piece of the sale mm-hmm. after he heard my speech at Sotheby's, and that's like real stand up because he didn't have to do that either. Yeah, he didn't. But the fact that he had the choice to do it and he did it, that's the key. Right. Let me have a choice. Right. Let the people have a choice. But if we like, no, it's going to be a rule. We're never going to get anything done. That is so honorable of you to do that. I don't recall anyone speaking up for artist royalties the way you have. And I never even thought of this before. It must be a frustration for creatives in the art world missing out on that kind of wealth. I mean, they got they have wealth, you know, from what they're generating. But I don't feel like it's um, generational wealth. Generational wealth. Yeah. Sure. So before we go, tell us a little bit about Harvard. 
you went to this business executive program, and I have been watching you share your experiences on social media over the years going to this program. I thought it was important to post that. Yeah, no, it was very important. <laughs> yes, it was. Education is so crucial for uh, us to make sure that we get, and especially for young people. But it was very inspiring. I'm glad you did that. Now, how did you end up going into this program? Um, I didn't really particularly wanted to go to Harvard. I just Harvard was something that I just wanted to challenge myself with once it was an option. But I really wanted to sharpen my pencil and just be on the level of where I was at business-wise, right? Because I was doing um, outside of music mergers and acquisitions and just bringing billion-dollar companies together and just doing real big things that nobody really knew about. And, and they were working, but I was still being treated as, like, just a musician. Instead of, like, Kassim, I was like, they would talk about Swiss. Right. And then I realized that they was doing that because I didn't know the language. Like, I knew the concept of a company. I knew how to advance a company, raise their valuation, everything. But I didn't really know the language to um, uh, participate in that big conversation. And then so instead of just getting mad and disgruntled, I just was like, you know what, let me fix it. Invest three years into, into this class. And uh, it was just the best thing I ever did. Tell us about it. Was it tough? Did you ever feel like quitting? Nah, I never quitting. Like, it was actually fun. It was like therapy being in school because I can actually be in school and learn things that I can use today. So that's the thing with, like, education. Like, you know, like when you're younger, you're not focusing on it because it feels so far away from you actually getting to your destination. Like, I was buying domains, and I built no commissions in school. Right. You know, I built, like, four companies actually in class um, that people are seeing today. And so, like, that's what made it fun. And, and, the, and the class is called... Is OPM owners, presidents, management. So you got owners and presidents of all the biggest companies around the world in my class. Right. Um, and that class is showing you how to manage, you know, huge groups. And the way I was able to get in that class was I was the owner at Monster Technology at the time, right? right. So I was the only shareholder besides the uh, owner of the company, you know, which which um, which allowed me to get in that class as a, as a main partner. Um, other than that, I don't think I would have been able to get into that class because um, <clears throat> the revenue of the company that you have the shareholders in had to be like $300 million plus, right? So, um, you know, just being a young African-American in a class with, you know, 48-plus different countries in it and just navigating the world with super leaders of gas company, you name it, they was in my class, right? right, right. You must have been one of the most interesting people in that class, because you really brought a lot to the table. Uh, they doing a case study on me, so I, I think I was okay. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah. I did because, you know, it was funny. And, um, you know, no disrespect to none of my classmates, but it was kind of like segregated by status. Mm -hmm. Right? Because um, when, you, when, you, when you go there, um, you wear like these name tags. And name tags have like your business. So it would be like such and such oil, such and such you know, fun, like, right, right, right. and those people would join each other. Like, I just had Kasim Dean on minds. Right. Like, I didn't even have, like, a logo of what I'm doing or who I represent. They didn't know I was Swiss, right. like, until my wife came to the school, blew me up. Oh, that must have been so funny. Right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, um, but even different, you know, was, was the crazy part was, like, even different countries wouldn't talk to, to, to certain countries. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it, and it was just like, you know, for me, what was bugging me out was like, like we're black, right? 
and like the Nigerians wouldn't talk to me. I'm like, yo, dude, like you know, like we we black, right? Right, right. Yeah, That's but crazy. you know what I'm saying? It's just like, and then so what I started doing was I started taking different countries with mixed groups out to dinner every night. And that's how the whole thing just came together. And then we just became like one big group of 300 and something people that it's like a family now. And we still talk. Do you travel abroad to see them? I noticed recently you just got back from Egypt. Yeah, but that didn't have anything to do with my, that was a family trip. But I got classmates everywhere. When I go to London, you anywhere in the world, I could, right. you straight. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's, 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 so it's, cool. it's, it's like I did two cohorts. So it's almost like 600 people in, in my networking system outside of the U.S. Wow of like all powerful people. So like that was um powerful. But the but the most powerful um thing I learned in, in school was was a one week class called Launching New Ventures. And that class taught me how to um think and apply. Right? Cause we could think of ideas all day, every day, but applying them is just different. Like 'cause we always thinking like we thinking of, like if you wanna like come up with something that you see in this room you thinking about it. You have it. It's like, right. you know it's going to make this and that, but you stop short because it's like, yeah, but where am I going to get the money the at? And where am I going to get this? And then, yeah. But this class teach you that. You, you don't even need no money to, to do any of it. Right. You, know, you wow. can look at a skyscraper, and, and if you have the right business plan, you can get the skyscraper. Just go to the, that- the sky's not the limits. It's just the view. Yeah. You got to have what's your, you know, you gotta have your, your, your entry point, you know? Wow. I need to steal that one. Sky is not the limits, just the view powerful all right swiss we're about to wrap um are you working on your wife alicia key's new project um yeah i'm working on her project but you know she's working on her project more than anything i mean um she's just she's just on a different vibe like it's just gonna be great when she decides to share i think people are gonna be very excited who else are you working with i'm working with everybody just you know um the intros are coming back which you spoke on those moments that we just talked about that you felt back then, those moments I'm bringing. I'm, you, in the next month, you're going to see those moments. So we're about to see and hear a lot of Swiss Beats music. I'm looking forward to it. you see. Thanks for taking time to be on the Backstory Podcast. We're actually in Swiss's studio where all the magic happens. I'm so proud of you, and thank you for sharing your story. It's very inspiring. And thank you for making memorable, timeless music. Thank you for having that timeline. We were just talking about that timeline. You broke that timeline down good. We were just talking about that, right? Your history is something that people need to know about. I'm glad I was able to be a part of this. Now you did All your homework. You- Have you gotten a chance to see the Quincy Jones documentary yet? Nope. But I- oh, man, you got to watch that. I got it. I got it. The next time you're on a flight or something, man, you got to watch that. Quincy Jones accomplished so much. Hard to believe it until you see how they break it down in this documentary. And for you, Mr. Swiss Beats, you're not even at halftime yet. You'll definitely be inspired creatively watching it. Quincy's the Don. Yeah. He's like, he's like the father. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it just is what it is. Like, the new album is called Poison. Swiss Beats, thank you again. Bless up. Special thanks to DJ One Plus Two on the production. Cinna Mikey, a.k.a. my brother Mike Tyner, for filming the session. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, Ella May, new artist on the scene, drops a song that brings the world together. My, I remember my sister bringing it to me and was like, you like this? And I sat there and I listened to it and I, and I was like, yeah, I really like this song. Mm-hmm. There, was just, there was just something about it. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but there was something about it. So I went in the studio and I finished it. I put my own little touch on it, um, created a bridge. There was no bridge on it before. So just I just kind of like made it whole and I was like, all right.
Get more of the backstory on our Patreon page with exclusive interviews, outtakes, and the Lost Controversial Backstory Podcast you can only get here. Support on the Backstory Bonus Level. Thank you for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm Colby Cole.